to the Blue Collar Zen Podcast, recorded here at the Detroit Zen Center. So for today's story, we um, will come into the modern era, and uh, our abbot will be uh, reading narrative and memoir uh, by a gentleman whose name is Lewis Lancaster. And Lewis Lancaster was a professor of religious studies at UC Berkeley, and became a lay student of a very well-known monk and artist by the name of Jungwang Sunim. And so this following narrative and memoir will detail uh, a trip that uh, Professor Lancaster was invited to take by Jungkwang on a journey around Korea. Jungkwang was a celebrated artist in his country, the Republic of South Korea. Even though he was a Buddhist monk, he was quite a controversial figure and engaged in unorthodox activities that were sometimes of concern to the more restrained members within the Buddhist community. As an artist, he received attention from both strong supporters and equally strong critics. Yet regardless of their views of his paintings and personal life, his ability as an appraiser of Buddhist art was unquestioned. He sat on the board and committees of national museums and even served as art advisor to the National Council of the Chovy Order, which is the main governing body of the monasteries in Korea. Copies of his paintings appeared in newspapers and on covers of magazines, often alongside articles questioning his candid responses to reporters' questions. These articles have kept his name in front of the public for decades. On a personal level, Jun Kwang Sunim may be difficult to judge because he acted and behaved as if he were a wild man. He was respected as a member of the organized art world in Korea and often referred to himself as a mad monk. And while walking around the streets of Seoul, he would alternately greet people with enthusiasm and would sometimes be assailed by hostile glances in response. Mr. Lancaster's conclusions about Jungkwang Sunim arose from their meeting in 1977 and subsequent travels around Korea. Our own abbot here at the Detroit Zen Center, who will read this narrative, came to know Jungkwang Sunim as a friend. They first met in 1984 in Seoul, and uh, perhaps after the reading of the narrative, we could talk a little bit about um, uh, Hwasun Sunim. Uh, his meeting and friendship with Jungwang. Mr. Lancaster experienced Jungkwang Sunim as both a difficult and delightful man, and in sharing his contact uh, with this individual, he asks that readers judge him by his paintings and philosophy as well as his actions and make up their own decision in mind about this mad monk. So, Sunim, would you mind reading the memoir and narrative by Mr. Lancaster? I'd love to. Jungkwang was first known to me as the man with the key. In his capacity as director of the Tongdo Sa Museum, in 1976, I had come to Tongdo Sa situated in the river valley just to the north of Pusan to photograph and observe life in Korean Buddhist monasteries. Surrounded by sharply rising mountains, cradled by the late summer green of ripening rice fields and a forest of native pines, the monastery indeed appears as one of the three jewels of Korean Buddhism. Though few Korean monasteries pay attention to art, 
Tongdosa has established a small but increasingly important museum housing a collection of paintings and artifacts that are not represented in the national museums. I was drawn immediately to this museum, impressed by the displays. I decided to make photographs for the archival collection at the University of California, Berkeley. To my consternation, the objects were locked in glass cases. Not even the best photographic equipment is adequate to solve the problems presented by glare and dust. When I asked the monks to open the cases, they shook their heads in sympathy and said that the director, Jung Kwang Sunam, was the only one to have control of the keys. He, being a great traveler, was away for an unknown length of time, and so my wish could not be granted. Though disappointed, I was not surprised by this occurrence. Asia is filled with interesting rooms and buildings that are locked, and the key is inevitably in the possession of somebody who is absent. In Nepal a few years ago, I trekked for two weeks to reach a remote monastery in the Rawaling Valley, an isolated settlement of the Sherpas near the Tibetan border. Arriving at the village following an arduous hike, I was greeted with the news that I could not see the manuscripts and xylographs, copies of Buddhist texts I had journeyed to see because, again, the man with the key was gone on a trip of unknown duration. On that occasion, I had time. I gambled. I pitched my tent and waited. After nine days, the wandering monk returned. Unfortunately, on this occasion in Korea, my time was limited, and it was not possible to wait. We photographed a few items not behind glass and left with plans to return the following year and complete the project, even if we had to pitch a tent. These Korean visits were the result of my desire to see some of the surviving monasteries of the Buddhist tradition, a tradition which I thought was fading fast. My survey of the library's available materials seemed to indicate that a visit to Korea would reveal only remains of the past. But my travels dismissed these previous conclusions about Korean Buddhism. I saw a lively and growing movement embodying the ancient glory of East Asian Buddhism. Thousands of monks and nuns still lived according to the ancient rites, practicing long periods of meditation, adhering to the vows of celibacy, poverty, and abstinence from stimulants. I was impressed by the calm of these monastic dwellers who seemed to be withdrawn into their own inner worlds. My interest and respect grew with continued contact, and I left Korea after that first visit determined to dedicate a part of my scholarly efforts toward making known the Buddhist history and literature of this much maligned and troubled nation. Through the years, I continued to visit Korea, and I adhered to my goal by publishing a catalog of the Buddhist canon preserved on more than 81,000 printing blocks. After my 1976 trip, I secured financial assistance from the University of California Expeditions Program, which allowed me to return to photograph and study the monastic sites. Among my plans was to find the man with the key at Tongdosa Museum. Thus, in the fall of 1977, I was stationed in a tiny inn near the gate of the monastery awaiting the monk's return. After what now appears to be the prescribed length of time for a monk's absence, nine days had passed. He returned and a message was sent to me at the inn. I hastened up the road to the monastery and as I drew closer, I noticed a stir of activity as monks of all ranks gathered about. They parted at my arrival, and I looked into Jung Kwang Sunam's room for the first time. Seen through the doorway was a framed vision of chaos. Old books and manuscripts were stacked against one wall, 
Some collapsed under the weight of the unwieldy items placed on the top. The clutter of paintings, rolled canvas, heaps of rice paper, framed pictures, and artistic debris of every imaginable kind made the room appear as if a sealed chamber of treasure had just been pillaged. In the gloom of the large chamber, a low table of sizable proportion stood, stacked with mounds of paper that threatened to engulf it. In the one small area preserved from this chaotic disarray, sitting on a cushion, was the long-sought Jung Kwang Sunum, my man with the key. As his quarters shocked me, because they differed so radically from the usually neat, sparse arrangements of a monk's quarters, so Jung Kwang Sunum's dress presented a surprise. His wrinkled robe had spots of paint. He smiled, invited me to sit, and ordered tea. It comes as a surprise in Korea to find that most people do not drink tea regularly. Instead, they drink the warm water left over from cooking rice, or drink a, or, or drink a made from toasted barley. Tea making, however, is an art, a practice most often reserved for Buddhist monks and nuns. My host brought out the cups and the ubiquitous electric coffee pot to heat the water. He started to show me the various items that were stacked, rolled, or dumped about the room, and my excitement grew as each new item was revealed. My mind reeled at the treasures which lay buried in this room. Old folk paintings, drawings of zodiac animals, rubbings of printing blocks, books, and manuscripts. In my excited state, I stumbled and knocked against the electric coffee pot, an anomaly in this room of old and beautiful artworks. The pot turned over, pouring boiling water over my foot and threatening to spread to the surrounding mounds of stored paper. Cloths were thrown down to absorb the water while I, attempting with little success to preserve my dignity, hopped about the room in pain. Thus began our friendship. Among the paintings, I spotted one striking ink sketch, primitive in execution, but bold and powerful. I exclaimed over it to my host, applauding the effectiveness of its brushstrokes. He looked at me with this speculative glance and asked, why do you like this? It's like a Zen painting, should be, and so seldom is, I replied. I had seen a good deal of Zen painting and discovered all too often that the quick stick sketches of the brush and ink artists are precious, self-conscious expressions of immediacy. This brushwork, however, was so forthright and lacking in self-consciousness that I responded to it instantly. After a pause, he said with a laugh, Ha ha! This is my very own painting. From that moment on, our relationship changed. I had passed some kind of a test, and the barriers between us began to fall as he shared with me his work and his problems. He told me his discouragement at having monks reject his work because of its non-conformity with the hallowed canons of painting. A few of his fellow monks, as well as a number of museum people and collectors, had given support to his work, but Jung Kwang had pursued his art without the thought of selling it at all. He had given an occasional painting to a few of his friends, but most of his collection was stuffed into closets and drawers and monasteries and Buddhist hermitages all over Korea. Looking at one of his animal paintings, so humorous and that removed from the attempt to be humorous, I remarked, Jung Kwang, you are the Picasso of Korea. Jung Kwang snapped back, I'm better. His paintings are filled with thought. Mine are not. We sat for hours looking at the work scattered about in his room at Tongdo Sa. 
There we formed a plan to publish a volume containing a collection of his paintings. It would be necessary to gather his best work from a dozen spots scattered around the country. We made arrangements to meet in my hotel lobby one week from that day to begin our journey. Well, what a journey it was to be. Buses, trains, planes, taxis, and long hikes took us to various destinations. For more than two weeks, we crisscrossed the country. During that time, we came to know each other only as fellow voyagers can. When I first saw Jung Kwang Sunum, I had sensed him a different kind of monk, an artist to be sure, but also an individual who, who behaved in an unorthodox style. I joked with him about his manner one day when he was happily drinking from a bottle of whiskey. He responded that he practiced unlimited action and was no longer bound to the strict rules that govern monastic life. Korean Buddhism history is filled with stories of such monks and nuns who, having achieved a high state of awakening, turn away from the limiting social rules to live according to an internalized order. These individuals often exhibit extraordinary behavior including uninhibited actions often labeled immoral. While I had read of such people, one of the great founders of the Korean Buddhist monastic tradition, Wonhyo, belonged to this group. This was my first exposure to someone who professed to practice such a lifestyle in the present day. Eagerly, I began to question him and challenge his behavior which struck me as undisciplined and self-indulgent. As he told his story, I recorded it in my notebook, exactly what he said. When I was first in the monastery, I was known as one of the best meditators. I meditated so much that I developed calluses from having my feet in the lotus posture for so long. Once I went for two years, without changing my clothes. I walked outside in the same way, whether it was raining or snowing or a clear sunny day. During those years, the rain washed me. Finally came the day when the difference between meditating and not meditating disappeared. Every act, every word was meditation. From that time on, I practiced unlimited action Sometimes I sleep, sometimes not. When I am hungry, I eat, and sometime for days I eat nothing. I sometimes drink only water, and other times bottles of wine or whiskey. I have slept with a thousand women. One was a hunchback, and no one wanted her. But to me, she was the same as the most beautiful woman. I gave her love, and she became a happier person. I never hurt anyone by my actions. But I'm a Buddhist mop. A mop is something that gets dirty itself, that makes everything it touches clean. I have to act this way. I have to live the Buddhist doctrine that there are no distinctions that right and wrong are projections of our mind. By living unlimited action, I daily teach the message of Buddhism. There should always be a few like me to remind people of their habits and patterns. A young monk listening intently asked, should I act like you? No, 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 if you need to ask, then you must meditate and follow every rule without exception. Only when the winter snow is the same to you as the warm summer evening and the rain is like sunshine can you ever consider such activity. If a person who is not ready practices this way, it is too draining 
They will fade and grow ill within a few weeks. I have practiced unlimited action for years, and I am always rested. Had I been pretending, I would have died long ago. Well, Jung Kuang's statements echo the texts of Buddhism and the remarks of many of his countrymen who had practiced unlimited action. I found it nonetheless difficult to understand. My intellectual observations left me ill-prepared to travel with a monk who practiced such an unorthodox lifestyle. I was yet to discover just how overwhelming such an experience could be. One of our first stops was the famous Heian-saw on Mount Kaya in the interior of Korea. Here we planned to spend a few days talking with the monks and examining the art contained in the monastic buildings. That night was one of those eerie Asian fall evenings when the sky is clear and the moon seems too bright to look at. At 9 p.m. when the monks retired to their rooms, I sought my bed. Jung Kwang remained on the veranda, and later as I began to doze, I heard him singing. Climbing out of bed, I opened the window there in the moonlight. He was slowly dancing alone in harmony with the night and the sky. In the pre-dawn darkness, Jung Kwang shook me awake. Let's go visit the nuns, he said. <laughs> Pulling myself to consciousness, I looked at my watch and saw that it was just past 3 a.m. But Jung Kwang Sunam, I pleaded, it's too early. They won't be up yet. Well, they should be up early, and we'll need breakfast to boot, he replied. I pulled on my rumpled clothes and set off through the darkness. The path was narrow and wound up and around the side of the mountain. Our dim flashlight gave only a hint of the path, revealing none of the small streams through which Jung Kwang marched without a pause, and I sought to avoid with little success. We approached the nuns' quarters to find the total stillness indicative that all within were asleep. Jung Kwang, undaunted by the signs of repose, banged on the gate and shouted, Hey, where are you? Visitors here. Are you meditating? The silence dispelled by his voice was replaced by the faint rustle of robes and the scrape of doors opening as finally a point of light approached the gate. A nun calmly opened the gate and invited us to enter. Jung Kwang announced his hunger, and we were ushered into a small room. My earlier embarrassment at arriving in such a fashion faded as the nuns greeted us with pleasure. Food began to arrive, fruit, a hot milk drink, and finally a full meal of rice, seaweed soup, pickled fern fronds made from acorns, cooked green herbs, and of course, gimchi. As the sun rose, we sat with the door of our room open, looking out across the distant valleys and mountains, sipping the warm water left from cooking the rice. The welcome we received from those nuns in that lonely spot, I'll never forget. Later that day, still sleepy from the early morning visit, I sat quietly on the steps of the guest house. Jung Kwang, hurrying across the compound, announced, I'm tired of this place. Let's go to Pusan. But Jung Kwang, it's already 5 p.m., and it takes four or five hours to get there by bus. Let's go tomorrow. Are you coming, he asked, as he gathered up his small gray cloth bag, the extent of his luggage, and started at a brisk pace down toward the bus stop. I, in the meantime, frantically tore about the room, collecting my clothes, camera, books, film, and suitcases, then rushed down the path after him. All my gear was tied to a small wheel luggage cart and kept falling off as I tried to keep up with him on the rough dirt path. Our group, comprised of Jung Kwang, Mr. Wu, my assistant, a young American monk, Hae Myung, photographer Bill Hawker, and myself headed for Pusan.
We arrive late that night at the house of a publisher friend of Jung Kwang's. The household had already prepared for bed, and our arrival caused some confusion that echoed throughout the building, which housed both business and home. The host, accustomed to the comings and goings of Jung Kwang, arranged for our food, beds, and refreshments. The host said to Jung Kwang, I'm doing all this for you, and you have never painted a picture for me. You should do one tonight. Fine, said Jung Kwang. You must get together all the material. New brushes, paper, wine, cigarettes, dried squid, a radio, and someone to grind up the ink stick. The young boys of the family were sent flying about the shops to gather these supplies. As soon as dinner was cleared, the stage was set for Jung Kwang. We sat facing him in a half circle while he fussed about with the paper, tested the ink, then tasting it and pronouncing that all was ready. He then opened up the wine and started to dance to the music on the radio, a Korean version of American rock and roll. He twirled about the room, copying traditional shamanistic dances, alternating sips of wine and bites of squid. As the tempo increased, he kicked articles out of his way and danced with increased energy. Then suddenly he tore off his clothes and turned toward us with his brush poised in his hand. With agility, he bent over a sheet of paper and in a few seconds made a painting of Bodhidharma, the great saint of the Zen tradition. His movements were absolutely controlled in sharp contrast to his drunken swagger while he was dancing. During the next minutes, he made six paintings, punctuating the process with more wine drinking, smoking, dancing, eating, and laughing. He donned the discarded clothing and sat quiet and calm. Show me what I did, he said, with a voice that seemed suddenly dim and near weariness. He looked at each of his paintings, sometimes exclaiming joy over a brushstroke. He picked up the last painting and crumpled it in his hand, saying in English, No good! Exhausted by the day's activities and by the recent spectacle, we all went to our beds. But Jung Kwang left the house to wander through the city streets, unable or not needing to sleep. As my travels with Jung Kwang continued, I slowly learned to follow the rhythm which never followed a predetermined pattern. No more schedules were made. My notebook, filled with dates and lists of things to be accomplished, was packed away. I began to enjoy events as an adventure. One day we entered a bus station bound for one of the monasteries that held some of his artwork. Jung Kwang stood for a moment, looking at the schedule of buses, shrugged his shoulders as he noted that our bus was due in half an hour, and without a word, climbed on a bus going in the opposite direction. I took my seat beside him without protest. After we had passed several towns, Jung Kwang announced, We have come to a good place. There's a good restaurant here. Let's have a meal. And so we sat in the autumn evening and ate, while Jung Kwang flirted with the waitress who knew him very well. This is not to say that I had become completely successful in throwing off the layers of conditioning that had dictated my actions and thoughts. Each day of our trip, I was given a demonstration in just how short of enlightened action my state of mind was. Jung Kwang seldom allowed a conversation to follow the lines of conventional dialogue. He used Dharma talk, infusing our interactions with Zen koans, interchanges with which the teacher attempts to throw off the mechanisms of reason that limit his pupil. As Jung Kwang sensed that I was beginning to parade information from the world of the senses, he would begin to question and probe as in the following dialogue. The weather is very warm today, I casually remarked. What is warm is what is not warm. Please show me, he replied. Me puzzled. The weather. Where? Everywhere. Is there something which is not weather? Well, yes, I retorted. This teapot is not. Ha <laughs> ha! So weather is not everywhere, he laughed.
My wife fared better than I in these exchanges. One night toward the end of our trip, as we sat laughing and talking at a party, Chung Kwang handed her a newly lit cigarette. She was already in the process of smoking a cigarette, so he watched with interest as, she, as he handed her the second one. Without hesitation, she inserted it between two other fingers and proceeded to smoke the two at the same time. He was delighted and pronounced, That is the way. No second thoughts. No following the usual patterns. For the rest of the evening, he beamed at her. And that night, he painted a figure of Bodhidharma as a female smoking two cigarettes. These exchanges were not exclusively reserved for teacher-pupil exchanges. I observed Jung Kwang resort to Dharma talk on several occasions when in the midst of an angry argument. Because Jung Kwang would not stick to schedules, we often arrived at a monastery long after the monks had retired for the night. To the annoyance of the monks or nuns and their terror of robbers, my companion reacted with amusement. One night we arrived at a remote monastery high in the mountains. Jung Kwang walked around the deserted courtyard yelling, Hey! After no response, he yelled louder, I said hey! A voice muttered, Who are you? The door opened a crack. I'm Jung Kwang. We need a bed. Hurry, you sluggards! I don't care who you are. Don't call me a sluggard. Coming here in the middle of the night? Go away! And with that, he slammed the door. You think you can turn me away? Hey, hey! You insulted me! The monk said again, sticking his head out the door. We need a bed. Hurry up, sluggard. And then with a sudden smile. Don't be so limited. Getting up, lying down, it's all the same. The monk now, reluctantly smiling. Then I'll just be lying down again. Jung Kwang frowning. Then I'll just be yelling again, hey! No response. I said, hey, hey, hey! I waited with some apprehension for the answer. I heard you. At last you're enlightened. The monk yielded to the force of Jung Kwang's presence. He emerged from his room and entertained us with great care. As the days progressed, I lived with strange sense of well-being. The memories blend together, and much of what I experienced seems to have all taken place in just a single day breakfast of hot milk and cake in a tiny grocery store, being pulled into a doorway and there finding a room filled with pools of mineral water in which to soak away the pain of nights spent hard on hard floors, luxuriating in a barber shop for hours while being shaved, trimmed, and massaged, and laughing as Jung Kwang greeted an endless line of friends. One day toward the end of the trip, Jung Kwang spotted a new issue of one of Korea's most popular magazines, which announced in its headline, Strange Monk Eats Meat and Has Sex. On the cover appeared a picture of Jung Kwang, and the article inside gave more lurid facts of his lifestyle. Sleeping with numerous women, engaging in sex, drinking, smoking, I was dismayed to see his life of unlimited action subject to such degradation. Jung Kwang, why did you tell them all that, I asked. He looked at me, quite surprised, and also with a bit of disappointment replied, A man of unlimited action tells no lies, does not cover up. I am pleased with the article. He tells the things I told him. The magazine's popularity was soon apparent. We met a monk on the street who, catching sight of Jung Kwang, came over waving the magazine and shouting, You're not a monk. Why do you wear that robe? Saying this, he made as if to tear it off. I am a monk, and you will never take my robe off, declared an unperturbed Jung Kwang. Wherever he went, people pointed either accosted Jung Kwang or stood in, in groups laughing. I finally asked him, Did you have all those things mentioned? Did you have sex with women? Did you have sex with old people? Yes, he answered. All sentient beings have the Buddha nature. Why make distinctions? I remained troubled by this pu publicity, while Jin Kuang seemed undisturbed. 
even as the Fuhrer reached to the highest circles of government and within the Buddhist order. Chung Kwang was never subject to shame, and his unconcerned manner of handling the problem was one of the most impressive aspects of my travel with him. Sensing my concern, he told me one day, when I paint a picture, my brush must move without hesitation. There can be no mistakes to be corrected. Only when there is unlimited action can the brush move with force and power. He took out one of his paintings and pointed to a bold line running from top to bottom. Look at that line. It is the line of enlightenment. There is only one line like that in the universe, and it will never, ever be made again. You cannot think to make such a line and succeed. It must come from having no limits to your action of painting the line. Through these incidents, my mild-mannered professional approach to life was continuously tested. Jung Kwang was a man who spoke with deep understanding of the highest teachings of the Buddhist tradition. He was no renegade monk, but rather a trained meditator who had achieved awakening, granting him a freedom in direct opposition to my own carefully controlled approach to life. I sensed that I was undergoing profound changes as, result, as a result of my contact with Jung Kwang, and I became less sure of my own rational processes. Once we arrived late at night, our usual procedure, in a small town that still is nameless in my memory. The streets were dark except for a shaft of light emanating from a single sign hanging from a small hotel. You'll like this place. One of my disciples owns it, he said. The small lobby looked unused, but laughter and music could be heard from a room further back. Chung Kwang knew the way and led me to a large lounge where a dozen or so women, carefully dressed in Korean costumes, gave their attention to the customers, of course, all men, drinking and talking. Which one is your disciple, I asked with some puzzlement. I followed him down more corridor, corridors until he threw open a door and boomed out his greeting. A handsome older woman, still showing the beauty of her younger years, jumped with surprise. Like so many others, she seemed glad to see him, and we were soon settled in a room which was filled with expensive Western-style furniture. After a time, she began to talk of her conversion under the aegis of Jung Kwang, all the while fingering her prayer beads. She was full of questions about my Buddhist doctrine and took advantage of my professional presence, asking some intelligent and penetrating questions. Before long, the two of us were left to our intellectual profundity, while Jung Kwang roamed the hotel, enjoying the company and periodically raised a howl of laughter as he sparred with the hostesses. Near dawn, we ate a meal, and Jung Kwang led me back to the bus station. A day late, we took our final train ride into Seoul. The car was crowded with late afternoon commute commuters, and the air inside was hot and stuffy. The passengers were quiet and aloof, tired, of guess, I guess, from a day of work. Jung Kwang strolled up and down the aisle, stirring up talk and laughter among the people teasing the young girls who hid their faces and giggles at his outrageous remarks about their beauty. When he returned to me, I offered my seat, but he pushed me back into it and sat down on the floor, assuming a meditation posture, and went to sleep, surrounded by a crowd of commuters. Seeing him like that, he appeared fragile, alone on the floor. We looked at each other and at him and waited quietly as he slept, as if standing guard. After two weeks of intensive travel, I had to announce to Jung Kwang that my time of departure had arrived, as my airline ticket required that I leave on a set date. I waved my sheaf of tickets as if to testify to the importance of my schedule. My old patterns began to reassert themselves. He reminded me there was a collection of paintings in a small monastery in the mountains 
in the central portion of the country, a collection that should certainly be seen. I replied that I could not see them this time, again waving my tickets. Jun Kuang just shook his head with wonder as I looked at the offending tickets, which by now lay sagging in my hand. What a flimsy barrier set our paths on their given courses. Though I left Korea scheduled, Jun Kuang's influence over me has lingered, even now, as I write this introduction to his paintings, selected with his assistance, his spirit seems to hover about me. I remember with fondness our travels together. Jun Kuang's path is one which most of us could not follow. His lifestyle demands long nights without sleep, periods of inadequate food, extended travel, arduous hikes, and endless wandering along the pavement of Korea's cities. Accompanied by small shopkeepers, prostitutes, rich executives, monks, nuns, professors, children, and newspaper reporters, he makes no distinction among them. My influence over him as a foreign scholar was no more profound than the man at the fruit shop. Despite my onslaught of questions about his actions, not once in our travels did Jun Kuang retreat from his doctrine of unlimited action. Each moment was a surprise to me. And in this unaccustomed lifestyle, a new awareness engulfed me. For a limited period of time, I dropped my professional facade and allowed this mad monk to carry me along a new path. Jun Kuang said of the path of unlimited action, If the one who practices it is, is dead, there is reverence. If he is alive, there is bound to be trouble. His compatriots are found among the ancient Taoist sages and monks, among the eccentric and often despised shamans of every culture. Still, few other societies or religious traditions could have absorbed a person of such eccentricity as easily as Korean Buddhism. In these anecdotes, I have attempted to share the experience of living in the presence of this awakened person. His paintings, too, are an expression of his lifestyle, and they are filled with the same vigor that he displays in life. They are iconoclastic, poking fun at individuals or sacred objects, and they always challenge the viewer. The art, all of it, completed in a few seconds, exemplifies unlimited action with the brush. These paintings are executed without hesitation, without thought. I believe that Jun Kuang's painting deserves the attention of Westerners as well as his countrymen, for it shows us the outer limits of painting, a point where each brushstroke is the whole of the experience and contains the spirit of the artist. Whenever I look at these paintings of his, I see Jun Kuang's face beaming as he admires his work holding up a closed fist, the thumb pointing up and pronouncing in English, very good. And that is, uh, what year? Lewis Lancaster, 1979. I wonder if you might share with us uh, your memory of your first encounter with Jung Kwong, or just maybe any encounter that comes to mind and over the course of your friendship with him. Mm. You know, it's really something I had a number of encounters and you're asking about the first. And I, I really remember the first because uh, my teacher talked to him on the phone, mm. which of course we didn't have cell phones in those days. So it, it was, he called him at a small temple that he was residing in taking care of an old nun in the city of Seoul. And after hanging up the phone, Samu Sinem said, tonight we're going to an art opening uh, of Jung Kwang's. And, uh, what, and what you'll, year, what year would that 1984. Be? And you'll get a chance to meet him. Okay. And so we're, I'd already read the book at that point. Yeah. So we got there and like there's, 
you know, a couple of hundred people. Mm. And his paintings are all over the walls, and there's he's, he's got his paintings on some vases, and and we walk in, and like literally people are dressed up. Koreans are a lot of the time anyway, but this was like a really formal evening, and people are completely dressed. And then when he saw my teacher, he immediately came over to us and he's got an old army jacket on with a hat, one of those little short peaked hats turned kind of to the side and uh, old pants of some kind, I don't know. And he's got a big smile on his face and he greets us right in and introduces us. And, and I don't remember the exact exchanges, but I remember I was just glaring at him. And then he walked us to the middle of this huge thing and sat down and, and said and told us to sit down so we're sitting down and there were just three of us and him so the four of us just making a small circle and then he ordered up food and people brought food to us and i couldn't stop looking at him thinking how could he not be self-conscious he's the host of not exactly the host but the star yeah. of this event but i'm looking at him and he is absolutely undisturbed by everything going around him. <laughs> like oh my god and so that was my that was my first encounter so uh, we had a chance to look at the painting a little bit and with him you know saying stuff in korean that, that my teacher wasn't exactly translating but you know when you see the plates in his book you you, you can't you can't believe what it looks like in Typically, these are uh, calligraphy and brush painting is done with black and white. Yeah. And so he's got a few and there's red in it. Right. And so he didn't say at that point, but, you know, he somebody apparently asked him, and my, and my teacher was recounting to it, where did you get the ability to get red? And, and he said, from, from a... Uh, a young virgin's menstrual cycle. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, like just the most bizarre statement one could think. And of course, knowing Jung Kwang, you wonder, I wonder if that's true or not. You don't know. But anyway, that was my first encounter. And as I told you, um, you know, I was visiting Korea and uh, um, we again did see him at the end of the trip. We had to, this time, get to his temple and um, so we we were in those days finding something in Seoul was almost impossible because it's so old that numbers aren't yeah. coordinated and so right. there's a lot of phone calls going on and and finally we got within you know fairly close to him and then he literally came out and met us mm -hmm. and then walked us back and then we walk into his room which is probably about the size of my tea room. And it, the floor is covered with crumbled up paper. And it's it's late. And uh, I think we did have tea and maybe a little fruit. And mainly, uh, Samasun was talking. And then he announced that we were going to, the three of us were going to sleep in his room. Mm. And so... Jung Kwang left, and uh, we washed up and came back, and and I got there first, and I started opening up some of the stuff, and I stuffed a bunch of it in my backpack, like I couldn't <laughs> believe he was throwing stuff away. <laughs> and so we laid down, and uh, this is the one time in my life I was really happy to have to get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. So I get up, and uh, I think I, we were told that you have to go through to get to the bathroom, you have to go through the main hall. Okay. And you know, that's always lit at night because the Buddha's there. It's like our, our, uh, our center. And uh, there he is. And he's painting a traditional painting that is typically mounted behind a Buddha figure in every Buddhist temple in Korea. Really? Like, it's classical. Like, it has nothing. It looks like ah, yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. And it's like, two o'clock in the morning. And I realize it's true, He's not. he doesn't sleep. <laughs> so, so I went to the bathroom and I came back and uh, I remember I started to 
I started to take a closer look, and I guess one of my feet got too close to the painting, and then he gave me a little shout like that, you know, I got it, I got it, watch out, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, I went back and went to sleep, and and uh, yeah, that was my my last encounter with him on my trip in 1984. And then when you went back to Korea, you were able to have uh, more of a relationship with him when you went back on your own. Well, you saw, you know, the book. He, you know, he wrote my name in it and a little yeah. thing to me, and and. Uh, um, I knew the temple that he was in. Yeah. So when I was in Seoul studying Korean, uh, I I had Friday afternoons was my time free. So I went, I just went. I didn't have the ability to call and talk, so I just showed up. Mm. And then he just escorted me into a room and we started drinking. He was making, they were not exactly herbal, but like fruit teas really good remember one was really kind of made that dry kind of taste in your mouth but it was good and and then he asked me you know where i was staying i told him i was staying at that point i was at chogesa and he said write your number on the wall so i said okay and he handed me a like a a marking pencil and so i wrote you know whole son he took the pen out of my hand and he, and he wrote in big letters, Hwal Sun Sunam, what's your number? And then he wrote the number in great pen. It was, it was like, oh my God. And then, uh, so that w- I started making that a regular thing on Friday afternoon. I would just go and spend a couple of hours with them. And after two or three, because we couldn't talk. Yeah. I mean, like a baby. I mean, we he did some things that I understood, but yeah. I thought... I have a young man that was kind of wanting to learn about Buddhism from me because I was running a, a Sunday afternoon meditation when I was at Chogesa. And I asked this young man to go with me. He's a college student. As a translator. Yeah. yeah. So I took him in there and we're in the same room and sitting down drinking tea and and then he's trying to translate back and forth and then a few times he wouldn't translate what Jung Kwong <laughs> said. And I said, what's going on? He said, and then he kept resisting. And then finally, Jung Kwong said something else to him. And I said, please, you've got to tell me. He said, he, he, he told me to tell you not to bring me the next time. <laughs> You're in the way. So that was the end of it. But during the course of that conversation, the one thing that happened, he said to me, you should study with me. He said, just in three months, you'll either be completely enlightened or dead. <laughs> and then laughed, of course. So that was that was one of... Yeah, yeah, he was... The, the thing that, you know, being young, in a sense still, um, when I was with my teacher... Uh, he assured me that, that that we were with an enlightened being, yeah. uh, which because he's a totally controversial character in in Korea, right. and especially in the monk culture that are just uh, terrified of him. But in the course of um, you know my stay in Korea, I met an Oriental medicine doctor who was the number one uh, student of Jung Kwang Sunam. And he hosted me and took me to various places, including a Giseng house once, and uh, was just always talking about his relationship with Jung Kwang Sunam. So I was hearing those stories secondhand. Mm-hmm. And um, really a, a jump for Koreans to be with someone like that. Like I was just enjoying being with them. It was, there was no... Yeah being a Westerner and having trained with uh, this great Korean teacher, I, I just felt at ease with them that yeah. I was I didn't have to do anything. Yeah, it's really interesting to imagine uh, that kind of activity and behavior in the midst of such a formal, you know, such a formal and very appropriate culture. I mean, what, a, yeah. what an eccentric mind. And 
Right. Wish I would have had the opportunity to meet him. Yeah, it's too bad he was gone when I took away. you. So. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sunan. This is uh, a little bit different than our other podcast stories in the sense that it was sort of a biographical memoir. Um, yeah. But. Uh, well, he was a priceless cool. treasure. Yeah. And. Uh, Maybe some myths it, and stories and legends will emerge of him as the years go by. Well, what's interesting is when I came to Ann Arbor. Uh, there, a man practicing with me at the at the Zen Center was starting a bookstore. And that bookstore lasted for about 30 years. It was called The Shaman Drum. Uh-huh. And uh, at one point, he called me and said, I have, uh, I remember, 15 or 20 uh, of Jun Kuang's paintings. and oh. uh, But he was trying to sell them to me. I think he wanted $10,000 something, and I told him, well, I don't have the money, and he wasn't in a position to give anything away. So, yeah. uh, But I did see them, and uh, they, they were really special. I mean, that's this yeah. fellow had a really good eye for art, Wonderful. and I don't actually, I never found out how he acquired them exactly. But uh, So he was also very popular in Japan before Korea. Thanks for sharing, Sunan. Oh, well, it's enjoyable when you have the privilege of meeting a character like that. And and he has such a legacy in Korea. It's, it just reminds me of the time that I spent uh, there with him and, and, re- and seeing his art and reading this. Yeah. And I have a collection of his poetry that is yeah. spectacular. Yeah. The Mad Monk, Jung Hwang Sunan. Okay, well, uh, here's to Jim Hall.